Welcome to the Future of Podcast, the show about what everyday activities could look like in 10, 20, or 50 years down the road, and how we should prepare for these changes today. Uh, you know, the future isn't just something tomorrow's generation just walks into, it's something that we create today. And that's the goal of this podcast, to talk about what we can create today. So I'm Trevor Paul, I'm Michigan's Chief Mobility Officer, and on today's show, our, our first of the season, and our first in the history of the world, we'll be looking at the future of commuting, uh, which is, you know, short of sleeping, showering, eating dinner, might be one of the most common rituals that we all shared around the world before the pandemic. Whether you're in Detroit, Denver, Denmark, Dubai, then things changed with the pandemic. I don't know about you, but I, I was torn on commutes before the pandemic. I, you know, I loved the buffer time in the car to catch up on headlines, drink my morning coffee, but hated when like a 30 minute commute turned into like an hour and 30 minute commute because of construction, accidents, or congestion. Or even worse, and this is the worst, and I know you all can relate to this, after braving stop and go highway traffic, you finally get into the office and then have to, or get to the office, I should say, and have to circle the block or parking structure five times until a spot opens up. In fact, I read that the, the act of parking causes 30% of congestion and carbon emissions in a city. That's just wild. So the truth is our, our perceptions of the commute, all the good, the bad, and the ugly are at this weird point in history because we don't know how many folks are gonna go back to work and what that might look like. And you know, as traffic starts to pick up again and you know, America and the world begins to think about what it would look like to, to rub elbows at work and, and, and hang out at the same kitchen and, and you know, look over someone's cube and, and, and say hello. We just don't know for sure if that's gonna feel the same and how we get to those cubes, is that gonna be the same? And so today to help us figure it out, we have invited David Zipper from Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government to, to pull up a bar stool at our, our virtual kitchen island here. David goes to bed every night and wakes up every morning thinking about the dance between how governments in cities and states and counties deal with new technologies as these new technologies slowly change our lives. He's a researcher, a startup advisor, and an investor. David, thanks for joining us on the Future of Podcast. How are things in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> uh, they are, uh, they're good. They're good. Um, we are, uh, you know, in that sort of uh, strange purgatory between normalcy and, um, you know, the, the, the depths of the pandemic, which we're thankfully out of a little bit. So it's it's a bit odd, but but I'm sure it's much the same in Michigan and elsewhere as well. Um, and thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for inviting me. No, this is great. Um, so let's dive in. Um, so it's expected that, that the art of the commute is going to fundamentally change, as I've mentioned, like five times already. What can office workers in urban areas like D.C., Detroit, Ann Arbor, Grand Rapids expect to be different from, from their pre-pandemic commute options now and into the future, 2025, 2030, and beyond? Well, let me let me be clear. I don't have a crystal ball, and anybody who says they do is probably lying to you or deeply exaggerating what they know, but I think we can hazard some sort of educated guesses uh, and and sort of um, think through what's likely to happen with the commutes going forward. And I've written about this actually in, in Slate a little while ago, and I was prompted to write about it 
because a lot of people are saying, oh, well, we're going to be working from home. That's great because it means that we'll, there'll be a lot fewer people on the roads. Congestion will go down. Maybe we'll be able to reduce emissions. It's a great way to, to, to slow uh, climate change. This could be actually a really positive thing coming out of the pandemic. And I'm just not sure that's actually the case. In fact, I don't really buy into it. And my uh, my thinking, I, you know, I'll, I'll share it with you. Um, you know, for, for one thing, like I think there's an expectation that that as we go back to the office, if you talk to employers and if you talk to workers, a lot of folks are expecting to go back. Uh, maybe I don't know three days a week, whereas before they were there five days a week or, or four plus. And if that's the case, it seems like that could be an incentive to move further out from an urban core and, and do a longer, perhaps more painful commute because, you know, people might say rationally, well, I don't want to have a terrible commute five days a week, but I could handle it, you know, for three days. And if that happens, and we've already seen some of that, right, with, with people shifting toward the suburbs in many metro areas around the country over the last year and a half, if that really does seem become like a longer term trend, it has a major impact on how people travel. Because once you're further outside of the urban core, uh, well, for one thing, well, on the days you do drive to work, you're probably not gonna take transit because it's gonna be a longer trip. And if you're at home and you need to do your daily chores or, or if you need to like go get groceries or go shopping or meet someone for lunch, you'll probably be driving a, 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 probably a further distance than you would have if your base had been in, in Ann Arbor or Grand Rapids or in Detroit. So that's likely to end up with actually more vehicle miles traveled and more congestion. And we're already seeing some evidence of this, uh, of where there's now, um, you know, the, the rush hour is smoothed a bit. Uh, we aren't seeing these peak rush hour periods at 5 p.m. or at 9 a.m. the way we used to. But in a lot of suburban areas, you see elevated congestion throughout the, in, throughout the entire afternoon. And I wonder if that's something we're going to see for a while. So you're saying that the morning rush hour is going to bleed into lunch and the lunch rush hour is going to bleed into dinner. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't that just spread, spread out things to make it sort of a, a bit of a smoother not stop and go uh, uh, drive to wherever you need to go? Well, it depends if you have more vehicle miles traveled overall, right? If the average person is going to be driving more than they would have otherwise, then you might have moderate levels of congestion in the future, whereas prior to COVID, you know, you would have had smooth sailing on a highway. Um, now, you're right. You do have a point, though. I think, like, you know, a lot of the times you have highway departments and engineers that build for what's called the peak of the peak, to make sure the traffic can flow at least somewhat right at the, the time when you have the most demand for highway space at rush hour. And if that goes down, which it seems like it's likely to, that's good. It decreases the need to, to build new roads. But I would not count on uh, working from home to mean, well, now we're going to have, say, less vehicle miles traveled, less emissions, and potentially less yeah. congestion as overall. I just don't see it. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you had mentioned uh, a minute ago uh, transit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, core, I think, to the future of our cities is, is uh, the ability to move around without owning a vehicle. Um, so mm -hmm. what does the, the future of public transit look like in 10, 20 years? And, and, you know, even as, you know, people are thinking about sort of, you know, where they want to live now and how they want to move about their, their cities, can you talk a little bit about the the case for switching modes of transit? Uh, so maybe someone that used to drive 
you know, with the advent of bikes and even in some cases e-rickshaws. I mean, what's what's the case for, for some of these other options um, that all fit into the, a, an effective transit system? So I, I would say that, you know, the case for transit, I would argue, is probably not made as much to the individual rider who's going to make the best decision for himself or herself based on the quality of service available and the amount of money that he or she has, it's really, I think, up to governments to be candid about it. It's a question, I think, for state, local and federal government officials in Congress, really, to say, like, do we want to spend the money to invest in more frequent transit service that makes it more desirable? Do we want to set aside dedicated space to help people who are in a bus who are taking up less space on the highways and the roads and people who are driving themselves alone in an automobile, do we give them a little bit of a pat on the back and a thank you by uh, just giving them a dedicated bus rapid transit lane, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I firmly believe like, you know, you can tell people like, oh, you can you know, save some emissions or it's good for your city if you take transit. I don't think that's going to get anybody to do anything. It's really going to be a rational decision based on how, uh, how fast can my trip be, how reliable can it be on transit. And also that, that's sort of like the carrot part of it, right? Then there's the stick. Mm-hmm which is like how awful is, (laughs) how painful would my trip be if I was driving? And it's not just the congestion, right? It's also how much do I have to pay for parking, which is a loaded question, I know, at least in Detroit, from my conversations with people there, but it really does have a big impact on how people decide to travel. And actually, do you know your car is only in movement 5% of the time? Like the other 95%, it's stationary, usually in a parking spot. So parking is so critical to, to the future. People don't realize it. Um, we actually just launched in Detroit a smart parking lab to focus on that 95%. Because, I mean, if no one is going to claim parking leadership, I mean, that's Detroit's role, right? I mean, that, those are the types of things we need to lead on. Um, but, you know, you, you talk about sort of the different options with transit and, and, and even how cities treat it. A lot of that's going to be driven by, you know, how you can make money, right? And how you as a city can find new revenue channels to launch, for instance, new routes or, or new micromobility services. Can you talk about, like, the, the subscription plan model, the financial model that we may be heading towards as it relates to transit and cities and public-private partnerships? I think of it several different ways. Um... I think I I might start by saying that I think cities are getting a lot savvier about the ways that they can affect a, a mobility market and support a mobility market through their control over licenses and managing of the curb. Um, and I think in particular about micromobility, shared micromobility. Um, like, do you know, like how many cities right now in Michigan have, have scooters? Do you know by chance off the top of your head? All, all the major cities in Michigan from Grand Rapids to Lansing, obviously, and all around Southeast Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I find it, I, I've seen them in Detroit myself. It doesn't make sense they'd be elsewhere. It makes sense that they would be everywhere else too, because I think Pittsburgh was the last big American city to get them just a couple months ago. Um, I think cities are realizing um, this gets into it's a little bit wonky a bit, but it's interesting. You know, they have control over the regulations of which scooter companies can launch. And they've realized, like, actually, if we permit just one company or two companies, uh, Pittsburgh literally just permitted one, um, we actually give that company a better chance to succeed. And we can sort of say, look, we'll give you a very valuable sort of, you know, unique, exclusive permit. But in return, we want you to do these things to locate your devices next to transit stops. We want you to make 
your services available on what's called like a mobility as a service platform, which is really just like an integrated transportation app. And um, for the for if there's 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 folks listening who are interested in how these approaches can work, I'd really encourage you to look uh, to toward Pittsburgh, which I think has the most creative mobility as a service program, where they brought transit and bike share and scooters uh, and um, uh, a car share all into a single platform. It's actually on a startup's platform called Transit App. And they're really able to do this by very creatively working with um, with with the private vendors and and the right and using their regulatory power, so I think cities have a lot of opportunities to be creative with integrated mobility. I just I have to be honest with you, Trevor. I just I think this is a useful thing to do. But if we really want people to not have to drive, you know, the technology is good, but it can't replace the importance of having dedicated bike lanes and having high quality transit service, which to me is absolutely critical. Yeah, I had read that um, when the pandemic broke out, Oakland, California actually uh, closed 10% of its roads, returning them to bikes and walking lanes where, you know, humans were put, put first and, and vehicles second. And, I, you know, we began to see that trend play out in places like Traverse City and Ann Arbor as well. So I'm curious to see if, if it continues once um, people get moving a bit more and get out of their, their home. So one, one final set of questions for you. Um, you know, you look at the different commute solutions in, in a place like New York or Chicago, way more dense. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a different type of solution than if you look at a more sprawled out city like Los Angeles or Houston or, or even Detroit. Um, can you talk about like the differences based on the type of layout a city has in, in terms of the types of solutions that that could work best urban versus maybe a, a sprawl, a more sprawled out suburban setting? To be blunt about it, the denser a geography is, the easier it is to sustainably deploy high-quality transit services of all kinds. <laughs> it's pretty. I mean, and that actually that can apply for just like the urban core of a larger city. Um, you know, like where you can have like a dense downtown core and then a more suburban-style area outside of of that downtown. And it applies, honestly, Trevor, it applies to everything. It means that if you want to provide, say, commuter bus or commuter rail service from the suburbs into a city, you're probably going to have to subsidize those trips a whole lot more than you would trips that are going to take place inside the urban core. Um, It also means that we even talked about freight, but I think that's a really important transportation space too. and you know, like I, like I'm really interested in e-cargo bikes, which are used for parcel delivery all the time in many European cities. But they're very, very unusual in, in that fashion, at least in the United States. And they really can work well in dense urban areas. But you know, you start talking about like suburban Los Angeles, it it, it just doesn't apply. Well, we got to get them. I agree. I think that's the future. And I've, I've heard. Some of our big companies like Ford and GM even talk about sort of like what what that technology means for them in the future, that that um, bike delivery service would mean for them in the future. It's so interesting, like these large companies that have only focused on like SUVs and sedans are now looking at like delivery vans and e-bikes and other things. It's, it's a really exciting time. Yeah. Well, Ford owns Spin, the scooter company. Exactly. So they've made the yeah. investment and hopefully they can. And I know that Spin has done some e-cargo work, uh, bike work. It's just, I mean, for, it's interesting. Just before COVID began, I happened to be in um, in Germany for uh, for a work trip, and in Berlin, it's just incredible because they've just basically restricted 
access for delivery vans. So all around, you see workers on for uh, DHL, Deutsche Post, it's called there, mm-hmm. with e-cargo bikes all over the place. And it's terrific. Now, to your earlier point, that works in a dense urban core. It's not going to work in the suburbs. You've got to start somewhere, you know? And uh, to me, it's pretty exciting what, what could be possible looking ahead. So one, one final question. What is, what is the coolest thing that you've seen right now as it relates to moving around a city that maybe is only happening on one street or one intersection in one city, but you think is going to be massive in, in 20, 30 years. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot, but you're pretty, you're a Harvard guy, man. Like this should, this should be, this should be an easy one, right? Uh, yeah, but yeah, just projections are always tough. I'm good at analyzing what's out here now. Projections get dicey. First of all, let me, a couple, a couple reasons why I think it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. It's not just like, a cooler version of bike share like this is like a fundamentally different vehicle because uh when it's really hot you can use it and arrive to work without looking disheveled um it makes it makes being able to get to uh to tra- you can it, it it allows you to um to comfortably travel so much further than you could on a normal bike share bike and it's fascinating talking to Agencies in cities like uh, like Austin, Texas, where they have both electric bikes and normal pedal bikes, where pretty consistently the electric bikes are used five, six times as often. And to me, when I think about sort of like how do you actually create mode shift and get people to feel comfortable to uh, to not have to drive, you know, scooters and from what I can see, like they're pretty bumpy and it's not so comfortable going beyond a couple miles radius. Bike share is so it's really dependent on weather. It's hard to use it if you're working in the summer months. But I do think that e-bike share opens up a world of opportunities that I think could induce a heck of a lot more. Uh, more mode shift than that than even I think than than we're starting to they, I, a lot more than we appreciate at this point. Let's put it that way. We're just at the cusp of it. I'm excited to see that whole space evolve a lot more. You want something that's a little more out there? Um, okay. You can actually have weather protected. Right. Imagine this: so it starts raining, okay. and you say, "Well, now I can't take bike share anymore." You can actually put a shell over it and have it be weather protected. So you have these sort of like miniature. Like like it's almost like a like a, a slower motorcycle with a, with a, a shell around it. Vancouver has some of them. I think that's another whole space that could get a lot bigger. And you get back to your parking question. By definition, if vehicles are going to be uh, like shorter from head to toe, uh, that's going to increase the parking capacity, especially if it's on street parking we're talking about. So I think that also could get bigger as the vehicles develop and as batteries get cheaper and higher quality. David, How's that? thank you. You're you're brilliant, and that was strong. I I mean, any podcast that ends with like bikes and shells, I mean, to me, that's the future of commuting. Maybe I think that you know a couple of takeaways that I have is the future is very much a multimodal future where our cars are going to be used, but there's going to be also some more convenient options, some affordable options out there that we all can be excited about. Whether you're in the Midwest or at East Coast or or anywhere in the world. One more thing, David. How do people get a hold of you? So many good ideas today. Uh, what if they want to continue the conversation? Yeah, no, that'd be great. You can tweet at me at David Zipper, or you can send me an email. Um, and I even have like a little newsletter if people want to sign up. It's just uh, available at uh, davidzipper.com. So uh, I look forward. I'd, I'd love to hear from folks. But thanks again for uh, for having me. This has been a lot of fun. David, thank you again. Listeners, do not 
not forget, do not forget to subscribe and, and have the Future Up podcast right at your fingertips. You can download it each month through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on how the state of Michigan is shaping the future, visit michiganbusiness.org backslash mobilitymi. Bye, everybody.